about footy, real footy, you know, the, you know, the one you do with your feet. Hence, it's called football. So back in 2002, so I was driving from where we were living in Coventry, in the Midlands, over to Birmingham, where I was working, and this huge, gigantic banner was put up over a building. I think we're going to see a picture right now. <laughs> I think we are. Next slide, thank you. Can anyone read the words? Huge is a picture of a footballer, David Beckham, and the words, cometh the hour. It was the 2002 World Cup about to begin. David Beckham was our star player. All our hopes hung on him. And so, these famous words is taken from John's Gospel. Would you believe it? Cometh the hour, and the picture of David Beckham meaning cometh the man. Well, the World Cup came. <laughs> we got to the quarterfinals, and that was it. It was the end. <laughs> the hour came, but Britain, England, couldn't quite manage to win the World Cup in 2002. We're in Daniel chapter 2. We're moving through the book, chapter by chapter. We're confronted with an emergency for our heroes. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they have the name changed, but these are the Hebrew names. Into the emergency is Daniel and his friends, and everyone who has a similar skill set to them. It's an hour where Daniel will either stand up and be counted, be the man, or it will be the hour of his demise and the end of not just Daniel and his friends, but of all the wise men of Babylonia. So our series heading is Hope and Grace in Trial. This is our third one in. And our only heading this morning, our only heading this morning, cometh the hour, cometh the man. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. We're going to cover most of the verses in chapter 2. We won't have time to do all, but let me begin with verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. It's 6.04. He, this is the second year of his reign. He came into power about March, April, the previous year, 6.03. So the second year of his reign, he's already had great military success against Egypt. And so hyped up, and with already planning the next campaign, he has this dream that unsettles him. You can only imagine, you see, back in that era, in antiquity, kings, great noble men, would have dreams from the gods, or so they believed. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar, about to launch a new campaign to extend the borders of his kingdom. He has a dream. Surely this dream is something to do with the next campaign. He needs to know what he means. He needs some insight from the gods to be further victorious in his military ambitions. But the trouble is, he can't make heads or tails of his vision or his dreams. So he's in a, in a, in a real squeeze and he's into this situation then in the ancient Middle East that, that we encounter Daniel and his rise to prominence. Verse 2, so the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. 
in verse 5. This is what I firmly decided, says the king. If you do not tell me my dream, what my dream was, and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turn into piles of rubble. Boy, it's serious. I mean, a lot hangs on this. The interpretation could determine whether or not Nebuchadnezzar is successful in his next campaign, and he must know what the dream is. And so he opts the ante. He's already suspected, hasn't he, that these men that he's got around him, these so-called wise men, have been duping him all along. And for a time, he, he went along with it, and he, and he coped with it, and after all, perhaps the things they were telling him were not so significant. But here stands in balance his next campaign, perhaps even his kingdom. And so now he wants to be sure that they are being truthful about what they say. So he doesn't just want the interpretation. He wants the, he wants the dream on the pain of death. He is prepared to cut them to pieces. So the wise men, they know their time is up. That expose their fraudulent conduct is about to be found out, and so they protest. Listen to this: there is not a man on earth, verse ten, who can do what the king asks. But the king's not having any of it, and so he widens the net. Listen to this: he ordered the execution not just of these men, but of, of all the wise men of Babylon. That includes. Who does that include? He now wants the head of every wise man in Babylon. Who does that include? It includes Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. These are the key characters of our story, the namesake of the book. And so now, all of a sudden, it takes our interest. I mean, who cares about some wise men in Babylon? But Daniel... Hey, he's of interest to us, okay? And so the stage is set. The king's decree is out. Wise men are in danger. And it's into this emergency then that the man of the hour rises. We would have noticed last week that there was a secret verse just placed at the end of chapter 1. Daniel, the author, remember, Daniel has inserted it there, which is really getting us ready for the sequel, chapter 2. You know those movies? Do you have any movie fans here? Like watching movies? They finish, don't they? It's really frustrating. Something happens in the last scene, and you know you've got to wait two years for the sequel to be made. Daniel inserts this phrase right at the end of chapter 1, which prepares us for the sequel. And it's this. Listen to this. And Daniel, chapter 1, could understand. So he's at the learning of the Babylonian kingdom. He's advanced through his three-year training. And at the end of it, we're told that through God's empowerment, that Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. End of movie 1. Movie 2, chapter 2. The author then has set the backdrop for us. So contrary to what the wise men said, contrary to what they're protesting, there is a man in the kingdom who can genuinely interpret dreams. There is a man in the kingdom who can do this. And the man is 
Daniel. So we're at the crossroads. Oh, you guys love calling them intersections, don't you? I think that's a really cool word. I've, I've taken it up into my vocabulary. So when I'm speaking to people back in the UK, no, they haven't got a clue what I'm saying. Okay, but you guys look, we're at an intersection. It could go either way. Daniel could remain in hiding and hope that he gets away with it. They may not find him. Or he could step out of hiding, step up to the mark. Be the man of the hour and interpret this dream. And so this is the intersection we're at, the crossroads. What will Daniel do? He is perhaps the only man on the planet who can satisfy the king's desire to have his dream interpreted. So verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel, who has obviously found him, Daniel spoke up on his behalf, on the behalf of his friends. The very same Daniel that we've been introduced to, who's been trained, who's skilled, who has the gift of interpretation, speaks up. And notice how, look, here's a guy who has... Look, you meet a lot of people in life, don't you, who have a lot of intelligence, but not always a lot of wisdom. Graham, kidding. <laughs> yeah, oh, he wants to, you just want the intelligence, don't you? You don't care about the wisdom. <laughs> intelligence. No, look, Daniel has both intelligence and wisdom. He knows how to address people. He knows how to put himself at an advantage. He did that previously with the chief eunuch and how he managed to bring him round to letting him eat the food that he wanted to eat to make this stand. And now he brings Ariok around. And so Ariok, having learned or told Daniel the decree, Daniel, listen to this, he rises to the occasion. He's ready to approach the king. Daniel went into the king and asked for time. At the intersection, when we were asking, Will Daniel stand up, use his gift? You know, one of the, look, let me tell you, when you ask this question, what is the job of a pastor? Somebody tell me what is the primary distinction of a job of a pastor? Yeah, do lunch, but don't pay for it. Okay, especially if he's wise and an intelligent pastor. <laughs> Thank you for lunch, sure. <laughs> as long as Ken doesn't mind. Uh, right. <laughs> he's giving me some serious looks here. Ephesians chapter 4. Someone, someone tell me, Ephesians chapter 4. God gave some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for or equip service. Look, guys, let me tell you this. You may not believe it, especially when you look at Graham. You have gifts. <laughs> you are gifted, seriously. And the job of a pastor is not to hug all the key roles of the church for himself. Okay? The job of a pastor is to teach and prepare and train and release God's gifted people. Even you, Graham into service, into service. But there's no point having a gift 
if it just lies dormant. Don't waste your gift. Daniel has a gift, and he rises to the occasion. What will become of him? Will he do it? Yes, he rises. In another book from the exile, we have a woman, the great queen Esther. The lady or the woman of the moment for such a time as this. Well, this is Daniel's hour. This is the man of the hour. And Daniel, you could argue, friends, that Daniel's entire life has been building up to and leading to this moment. He was born. He was taken into exile. He was selected. He was trained for this moment. And at this intersection then, the question is, will he rise to the occasion? And Daniel does. Daniel does. But here's an issue. Here's an issue. So we have a willing, gifted man, the man of the hour. But there is an issue here. This is a job that is way above Daniel's pay grade. Why do I say that? He's willing He's taken it upon himself to stand in the gap, but this is a job that is way above Daniel's pay grade. Why? How do I know that? We want more time, but what does the king want? So here's the thing. Daniel can interpret dreams. You're going to know the dream. I mean, here's the thing. Okay, you tell me your dream. I'm, Lorraine, you tell me your dream. I can, have a, I can have a pretty good stab at it. Okay. <laughs> okay, I won't ask Jerry. <laughs> but this is, this is way above his pay grade because this is the dream that he first has to know the dream in order to be able to interpret it. In fact, this goes beyond anything we see in Scripture to this juncture. Okay, we had Joseph interpret dreams, but what, th- what was the advantage that Joseph had? He heard the dream. Pharaoh told him. This is going further than anything we've seen before in Scripture at this juncture. Daniel has to both know the dream and tell the dream. And so, and, uh, and Bruns already just hinted at it. And so Daniel encountering a situation that is much bigger than Daniel is. Does or turns to what? Turns to the Lord, turns to prayer. Listen to this. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He gets a company together, a group together. There's nothing like praying together. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So here's the thing. You see, the, the, the matrix of Di- the Daniel's finest hour, which we're at, the matrix of Daniel's finest hour, as it is in chapter 6, as it is in chapter 9, as it is in chapter 10, is his readiness to fall on his knees. It's his readiness to come before God. It's his readiness to say, my confidence is not in my skill set. Christian, as much as I want to encourage you to use your gifts, your confidence does not lie in your skill set. It lies in the God who gave you the skill. 
It lies in the hands of the God who perfected that skill, who knows how to use it, how to charge it, how to release it. So Daniel, Daniel turns to the God who gave him the gift. He brings his friends on board. He spends a night in prayer. He pleads with one who knows, not just Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but the God who knows the dream of every being, who knows it simultaneously. And let me tell you this, not only does he know the dreams that people have, he knows the dreams that people have before they dream the dreams they have. There's no extent, there's no limit, and there's no boundary to his knowledge. So he turns to the God who knows everything. He turns to Yahweh. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. During the night then, was in prayer, the God of Daniel, the God of Hananiah, the God of Mishael, and the God of Azariah appears or comes. Daniel receives his, this supernatural knowledge of another man's dream, a dream of we don't know how many weeks have gone by now. He receives supernatural knowledge and so armed now with a fresh boldness, I wonder if someone can get me a tissue, please, thank you. Armed now with a fresh boldness. Daniel, listen to this. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Could you do that again? <laughs> Armed now with fresh boldness. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain the, the king as dreams to him. That's right, king. But there is a God. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I want you to notice, friends, that faith receives its boldness from where? Where does faith receive its boldness? And faith is bold. He receives his boldness from God and prayer. Otherwise, it's just presumptuous. Otherwise, it's just presumption. Look, if you just step out in boldness because you've got some grand idea, I'm not interested. It's doomed from the outset. You see, faith is not presumption because faith receives his boldness from God through prayer. Daniel comes before the king with a renewed boldness because he is a man who has spent time in the presence of God in earnest prayer. So standing before the king, the one who wants his head, he goes on to explain, knowing this, listen to this friend, look at the boldness he takes here, look at the courage he takes here. If he is wrong, he's about to tell a dream to a man that, who's told his dream to no one. If he is wrong, it's off, with, it's off with his head. It's game over. It's the end of Daniel in chapter 2. This is a courageous, bold step. He comes before the king 
and with a boldness that only faith can give. He says, you looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head, look at the detail. This isn't one of those, you know, oh, you know, God's, I've got a word for you, and, and you know, God just, now this is detail. How do you know God is speaking to you prophetically? There's always detail. It's always detail. Okay, he said, look, the head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And moreover, in the dream appeared a quarried rock which struck and destroyed the statue. Verse 34, while you were watching, O king, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Let me just take note of this rock first. This is an important part. Notice that the rock is not cut by human hands. What's that telling you? So this rock is not cut by human hands. It's telling us that this rock's origins are of what? Of God. Thank you, Rain. It says no human intervention. This is purely a sovereign act of God. It's a rock not cut by hands. And moreover, it's, it becomes a huge mountain and fills the earth. What is that telling us about the effect of this rock of divine origins? What will these effects be? It'll be enormous, it'll be global, universal. This rock has divine origins and the impact that it'll have on the world is global. A global impression on the world. Let me give you the meaning of this statue then. It's at a head of gold. And Daniel tells us, tells the king. King, you are that head. It's, it's your kingdom. This kingdom that will last for at least 40 years with Nebuchadnezzar and at least another 21 years afterwards with his successors. So the head is, so that's telling us the head of gold. What's he telling Nebuchadnezzar? What's he loving about this interpretation? You're the head, you're the gold. You're the, the kingpin, king. Okay? And so it begins with Nebuchadnezzar. Then there's the chest and the arms of Silver, that's the Medo. Now, hey, look, let me tell you, this is where it gets more difficult, and it depends who you're reading, whether you're reading conservative scholars or more liberal scholars. Uh, and so here's where it gets difficult, because Daniel doesn't give us the explanation, and so it's much harder to discern what these successive empires are. The first one is the empire of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the gold, he's the elite empire. And so here's how it seems to work. The chest and the arms are the Medo-Persians. With Cyrus the Great in 539 BC, he conquered the Babylonians and set up his own kingdom. It lasted a couple of centuries. Uh, the, the next, the, 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 the belly and the thighs of bronze, that's probably, most probably, the Alexandrian, the, the Greeks began in 331 BC with Alexander the Great. His kingdom lasted for three centuries. And then the final bit, the legs, uh, the, the legs of iron and the feet of iron mixed of clay, that is most probably 27 BC now, the beginning of the, the Roman Empire. Went on for some 15 centuries. 
It's iron because of the iron-fisted nature of this military, of the military prowess of this empire, but mixed with clay because it was a fragile. It was a fragile empire nevertheless, but somehow held it together for, for 15 centuries. And so he's... Here's what Daniel is saying, and he doesn't fully explain this to, to Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, but here's what's coming out, that following this succession of empires in a dog-eat-dog world where survival is only assured for the fittest, finally, after Nebuchadnezzar, after a series of empires, one after another after another, finally comes this one-fifth empire. This fifth empire's origins are from where? From God, this fifth empire, unlike everyone that came before it, will be global. What does this fifth empire do? It comes and smashes the feet, obliterates the, the, the structure into smithereens. What is that saying about this fifth empire and what it will do to all of history? What's it saying? This absolutely. That's your ambition, isn't it? This, yeah, in this church. I know exactly what you're doing. You're after this job. That's the second time, second week running that you've tried to take my, my glory. Yes, yes, absolutely, Pamela. This fifth empire will remove all memory of every previous empire. It will wipe away every remnant of evil and of despots and of self-seekers and of glory hunters. This fifth empire that will come, it will smash to smithereens every memory, every thought, every presence of all that those empires stood for. We're talking about a brand new order, a new world with a new king and a new kingdom. And that world and that king is who? Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Listen to this. In those days, verse 34, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The fifth kingdom is eternal. Nor will it ever be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it will itself endure forever. Let me tell you this, friends, that when Jesus Christ comes, it will be forever. And ever. And ever. It will come and be established. And every memory of every despot, of every rule will be gone. And the only memory we'll have, the only conversation in town, will be of the reign and presence and power of Jesus and his kingdom. And that's all that will matter then. All that will matter then. That kingdom began on the first Christmas. Here's the thing you see. The thing about the reign of Jesus in this fifth kingdom it's not all future. It's already here. A savior of that fifth kingdom has been left in our midst. There's something of the savior of that kingdom here. A deposit of it is present in this room, in this gathering. We are a savior of Jesus' kingdom. 
this is a, a community in fellowship. A community that loves one another. A community where the word of God is center. And where the, word, where the word of God is center, we have the reign of God. Because how does Jesus reign in his church? What is Jesus' chief instrument for reigning in his church? For ruling his church? For governing his church? What is the quintessential instrument? It is that, but it's something more glorious. Don't let me down. <laughs> it is... It is the Word of God. And the minute that this, this the value of this world, word in any sense diminishes in Jesus' church, Jesus is no longer ruling it. Do we get that? The minute this becomes second to any other thing, we have deposed Jesus and we have made or planted a foreign king in the church. And the moment we do that, we cease to be church. We may be a community. We may even grow. We may have a reputation in the community and in the world, but we are not a church. And that kingdom will be blown to smithereens when the fifth is established. And so friends, friends, the kingdom of God then is not all future. The kingdom of Jesus, the fifth kingdom, it began with his advent. It began with his ministry. Do you remember what Jesus preached? Uh, Matthew 4. What did he preach? From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent for the kingdom. My fifth kingdom is near. You know the text it tells you it's within your reach. It's within you. We have to appreciate, friends. We have this phrase in Britain, I don't know if you use it here, it's all jam tomorrow. Do you use that? It means, you know, it's a great thing you're offering me, but it's all for tomorrow, it's all for the future, it's all jam tomorrow. You know, so it's bread today without jam, and, and tomorrow it's bread with jam. It, I think it goes back to the war when jam was, you know, uh, premium. It's all jam tomorrow when the war has ended. Well, the thing about Jesus' kingdom, it's not all jam tomorrow, because the kingdom is here. Do you know every time we experience the power of God in our lives, you are experiencing the fifth kingdom. Every time we see something miraculous, supernatural, we are, we are, we are, we are tapping into the fifth kingdom. There's a danger with that. It's called over-realized eschatology. Does anybody know what that means? What's over-realized eschatology? Sorry, eschatology is about the last times, about the kingdom of God. And over-realized eschatology is when we tell people, you can be healed, you will be healed, you will be prosperous, you should be prosperous. That's an over-realized eschatology because that's saying, I want all of the kingdom now. I want all of the benefits of the kingdom now. And there's no provision for that, this side of the establishment of the fifth kingdom of Jesus and so friends the kingdom is here now and when Jesus returns Acts 1 listen to this in Acts 1 this same Jesus that you've seen has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven when he comes back he will establish it 
We have it in part now. We experience some of it now. We tap into some of it now. We call on some of its power now. We access some of its wonder now. But when it comes and when he establishes it and when he sits on his throne, we will have the faith and glorious and eternal kingdom of Jesus forever. Verse 48. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. Daniel, (laughs) for stepping up to the mark, is given the greatest honor or highest rank in Babylonia. Daniel's interpretation of the dream then points us to Jesus. Remember we said last week, whatever chapter of the Bible you're in, If you cannot see Jesus, stand down, man. We don't want to hear from you. Daniel's dream points us to Jesus and his kingdom. But I want to say something more, friends. It's not just, so Daniel's dream points us to Jesus. Remember, all scripture points us to Jesus. Daniel's actions points us to Jesus. Why do I say that? Daniel's role here points us to Jesus. Why? Somebody tell me, where am I getting this from? Am I making this up? I'm saying Daniel's role here is typology, is Christocentric, is pointing us to Jesus. How? How is what Daniel's doing there telling us something about Jesus and his role? What's Daniel done? What's Daniel doing? How is that pointing us to Jesus? Prophecy. Prophecy? Potentially. I haven't seen that one. Potentially. Here's the one I was thinking. Here's the one I was thinking. So the king's decree is out. The king's decree is condemning all wise men to death. Daniel rises to the occasion. He intercedes for them and he faces the wrath of the king. Now tell me, how does Daniel's role point to Jesus? He's the saviour of the world. Look at this. Because of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. An hour cometh. And when the hour cometh, what? does Jesus do? Here's our predicament. That this is the predicament of God in the whole world. That every human, this is, what ca- this is what is the catalyst for our vision. This is what the catalyst for church growth. Church, I'm sure you're already in tune with this. If you're not, here's the reality. Here's the vision of Rivergate Christian Community that we must grow. Let me ask you this. When was the last time we prayed like Hannah? Give me a child else I Die! Let me ask church, when was the last time we prayed to God for church growth with that kind of zeal? Give us people or else we die. And so here's what it is. Here's the scenario of the whole world. The whole world stands convicted and guilty of sin. What is the consequence of that sin? Romans 6.23. Death. So here's, here's how Daniel points us to Jesus. The whole world is under the curse of who? The king. 
Okay? In exactly the Daniel scenario, the whole world is under the curse of the king. And at that hour, when our, when our future is condemnation, Mark 10, 45 tells us, what does Jesus do when the opportunity came? Let me ask you, let me take you one step back. Just as Daniel was the only person who could interpret the king's dream, who is the only person in the universe that can do something about our predicament before God. It's the man Jesus Christ. And when the hour came, Mark 10, 45, what does Jesus do? And when the intersection comes, does he step up to the mark? The Son of Man has come, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He comes to effect our change. He comes to face the wrath of God. Have we understood that? Jesus' trip to the cross wasn't a holiday. What was he doing? He was facing the wrath of God. He was taking on the king. He was coming before the king to intercede on our behalf. And when the hour came, when the hour came, John tells us in chapter 12, when the hour came, just like Daniel, he says, look, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. My heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No! It was for this very reason that I've come to this hour. Jesus, let me tell you something about Jesus. Like the Daniel who was appointed to Jesus, when the hour came for him to stand up and to be counted and to go before God and to face God's wrath on our behalf, let me tell you that your Jesus went all the way. He stepped every step to the cross. He took the whole journey he lay himself on the ground and he allowed himself to be pierced. He allowed himself to be hung. He suffered the weight of the wrath of God for the sins of the world and died to quench the wrath of the king. That's your man. He is the man that Daniel points to. He is your king. He's your hero. He's your God. And I present to you, friends, that when the hour came, your man, Jesus Christ, stood and was counted and won our freedom, won our existence, won our liberation, Jesus is the greater and eternal Daniel. Come of the man. Come of the hour. Come of the man. There's only one response to this man who stood for us and effected our future for good. And that is to worship him. That's all I want to say. That's all I want to say to you in closing. Worship him. Whoever you are, wherever your background, there's only one fitting response to this man. Worship him. Worship him. Worship Jesus the King.